Blog Talk Radio. Please stay tuned for Brandon's Buzz. I'm Joan Van Ark, and the buzz is hot. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it, baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz. Place to be. Hi, this is Peggy Scott Addison. Guess what? I am buzzing with my man Brandon on Brandon Buzz. This is Michael Brainerd on Brandon's Buzz. Are you Buzz? This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, and welcome to Brandon's Buzz. It's April 6, 2009. I've been off the air for almost a month. Uh, my day job schedule got really crazy in the back half of March, so I went on a little bit of a hiatus. And uh, I was going to have some best of shows to, to uh, kind of bridge the gap between between my last show and this show, but that didn't pan out. So anyway, I am back on the air uh, after a long hiatus, and I'm kind of kind of chomping at the bit, ready to get back into the fold. Uh, and I have a great guest. I couldn't think of a better guest to have on this show to kind of reintroduce myself to my show than this guy right here. And, you know, one thing is certain, they sure don't make soap punks like this anymore. From the moment we got our first real look at him as dashing, devious Senator Trey Clegg on the late, great CBS serial Capital, there was no doubt he was going to make a big, big splash. Witty, urbane, dripping with entitled sophistication and cool charm, and, you know, not so bad to look at either. He just had star quality written all over him, and he wrote it to the top of the heap with subsequent roles on INR, on General Hospital, on Santa Barbara, and most famously, at least in my house, as the recast Max Holden on One Life to Live, where he created infinite sparks with both of his leading ladies, Fiona Hutchinson and Yasmin Bleeth. He stepped away from acting a few years ago to indulge one of his other passions, landscape design, and helped found Campy and Walker, now a world-renowned design firm. And he's recently teamed up with Kathy Ireland on a series of projects, and he's come by the buzz this evening to discuss all of his careers and interests. What a great, genuine honor and a terrific thrill. So welcome to my show this evening, the great, the divine, Nicholas Walker. Well, Brandon, I don't know what to say except thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, it's great to be on your show, and it's a, it's a great show. So I'm honored to be on your show, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming by. Like I said, it's a great thrill. I've been a big fan of yours for a long, 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 probably longer than either of us care to talk about. That's all uh, right. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a great thrill to have you on the show tonight. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, and it's, uh, it's thrilling for me to be on your show. So uh, give us the 60-second bio on Nicholas Walker. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Let's get the boring stuff out of the way first. Okay, let's get the boring stuff out of the way. Um, I'm an identical twin. And so when I, I can't say I was born, we were born in Bogota, Colombia, in South America. Oh, wow. Uh, we've had sort of a, an interesting background be, due to my father's work, which he worked for ESSO and ESSO Europe. And then for some branding issues, ESSO became Exxon only in the United States. I got you. Okay. And then my sister was born in uh, Paris, France. So basically a very quick synopsis. The twins basically hovered around South, South America from Uruguay to Colombia. Then we went to Paris, 
and basically just imagine that we were floating around Mediterranean Europe, but predominantly Paris, London, and then we'd, you know, take trips to Portugal and Spain and Italy and Greece. Well, good luck. Uh, I'm the only, let me see here, uh, my sister lives in New York, my brother still yep. lives in Paris, he has a French wife, two French kids. Uh, they are struggling to speak English, as we, as my kids struggle to speak French. Um, and uh, that's about it. Um, uh, that's a quick you, synopsis. <laughs> how cognizant were you at that time? Do you do you remember any of those any of those jet setting travels? I mean, well, sure. Um, you know, at that time, you know, they used to ship families not by plane but by ship. So uh, the very first trip we took was, I think, on the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary from New York to Le Havre in France, and it was during the winter. So I remember a lot of people getting sick. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then we went back to the States for a short time, and then we took the SS France, which is a big you know, French liner. And then we went back to London, and we were on a liner called the SS United States. So the highlights for me as a kid was these big boat trips. And they're not boats. They're ships. They're cities. You know, they're, they're huge. And as a child, uh, it was always, you know, immensely fascinating to be on these big moving cities. And uh, that's something I will always cherish and remember. Wow. And wh where did you finally settle down at? Well, that's interesting. I mean, now I feel settled probably for the first time in my life, which <laughs> is in Los Angeles. Because you have to understand, I mean, we, you know, we moved all the time. Yes. You know, we went through many different school systems. Um, English is a third language. Wow. I had to learn English, and it was funny, the first time we came to the States, we were these um, French little boys who had all these relatives speaking English, and we looked at each other and said, you know, <laughs> whatever they're talking, we don't talk. Uh, so we went to the Lycée Français, uh, which is basically like the American school of London, of Rome, of, of uh, Buenos Aires, whatever, but it's the French version of that. So we went to the Lycée Français because we didn't speak any English. We had one hour of English by a French professor, and therefore, we never really learned English. So my father said, that's it. We're taking them out of the French school, putting them into an American school, immerse them. We'll struggle. We got A's in, in French, but uh, the other courses we kind of struggled through. <laughs> and then, obviously, eventually, we all learned how to speak English. Wow. So that's, you know, that's what it is. You know, those of us who, who grew up learning English, you know, don't really kind of take it for granted that, that it's not that hard a language to learn, but you know, uh, I took I took three years of Spanish in high school and then have continued to learn Spanish as an adult. And you know, it's Spanish is a remarkably easy language to pick up, and I've heard from others who speak it that French is even easier. And and that actually, when you get right down to it, English is the hardest language to learn because it has so many different bizarre rules. And I'm wondering if no, you found exactly. that true as well. Exactly. I mean, that's, and thank you for you saying that, because I didn't want to, you know, explore that very well. But, 
you know, the bottom line is English is not a phonetic language. It's a compilation of the Anglo-Saxon root plus some Latin-based words. So you have double the vocabulary for most languages. Exactly. Uh, there are as many exceptions as there are rules. <laughs> uh, spoken English is not necessarily written English. Yes. And on it goes. Uh -huh. But it's a beautiful language, and I am happy to say that I can now converse in it. <laughs> and uh, may I ask how long it took you to really get a handle on it? And and at first, well, it was oh. yeah. I mean, it was pretty interesting because you know, uh, as being French, and you know, and, and it's true, you know, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian are all in the Romanesque-based languages, the Latin root. So all of that is pretty common. They, they, they sort of bleed into each other, and there is a similarity that is logical. Um, so those are pretty easy. But when you jump out of you know, that root base and get into something that's a combo, <laughs> oh. it, it, was, it was a wrestle. So you know, the first couple of years, you know, several years, it was um, sort of, you know, I sounded like a, a Frenchie. And uh, <laughs> then uh, we moved to England, and then I kind of heard the King's English, or the Queen's English. So I, I got that exposure. And then I would say pretty much after living in London, I was able to say that, yeah, I, 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 that has become, you know, I, I've, I've, I'm comfortable with that language. I've mastered that language. Wow. I'd say about five, seven years. <laughs> <laughs> That, you know, that's, I mean, that's, if you think about it, though, that's the amount of time it takes, you know, uh, a child born here to learn it. So, you know, to, uh, I mean, to really get a handle on it. So it's, you know, that, that seems pretty, that seems pretty normal, I guess. Hello? Are you there? Oh, yes, I am. Yeah, no, yeah, my, my phone just went uh, off oh. a little bit there. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. So you know, um, tell me, tell me about moving around as a child. Tell me what that what that does. The good, the good, uh, the advantages of that and the disadvantages of that as a child. Kind of, well, uh, think, you know, yeah. not really having a, a firm home. Well, it, it, the good thing about that, it teaches you flexibility and adaptability, and it trained me, which I didn't know, for the life of an artist and an actor. So you live sort of a gypsy existence, and you begin to see the world from a worldview, and that people are people, no matter what color, what language, what class they come from. People all basically have love, have tears, have fears, and we all share that. So I, I very early on didn't see distinctions. I just see that people are people, you know? And uh, even with, with people I couldn't understand their particular language, I was able to not maybe speak their language, but I was able to communicate with them. Wow. Um, I think the, 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 the negatives are, are the obvious ones, that you, you don't have a firm base, uh, you don't have what we call roots, and you're always like, okay, am I going to stay here for a while? Um, you're always sort of not, you're always ready to leave. You're always, you know, living out of a suitcase and never, 
you know, taking a breath and saying, okay, this is where I'm going <laughs> to set roots. But, you know, today I'm so grateful um, for that experience because any negative, the, the, the positives sure outweigh the negatives, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, today uh, in my landscape design work um, and build, I have a design-build uh, landscape company, um, and, you know, most of the day I speak Spanish. I speak more Spanish during the day than I speak English because all of my workers are of Hispanic uh, uh, roots and um, basically because they love working the land, they understand plants, and uh, they're so willing to work. So I speak more Spanish than I speak English. <laughs> Wow, you know that's that, that's I, I I you know I can only imagine that I mean you know I I don't know how I want to say this but I saw an interview recently with Peter Bergman I don't know if you if you know sure that, yeah and his family moved around a lot too as a kid yeah. and uh, he was saying you know that his his big regret was that he doesn't have lifelong friends yeah know, and that, yeah. Known, like yeah. first grade yeah so uh, but um, as you say I mean. I'm sure that'd be I'm sure that would be a, a a con to it, but as you say, the pros far outweigh it. And you know, I'm, the things you get to learn as a kid, you know, traveling to the places where history was made. I mean, you yeah. know, that's it's just I, the I imprint of it. Exactly, the subconscious imprint uh, that you know, living in a city like Paris, uh, people say, well, where, where did you learn design? Why why do you have such a knack for it? And I say, well. I think I was just exposed to it. I just was Where design surrounded was born, by it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, my cells just, in, you know, basically absorbed it. Wow. So I, 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 I will always say, yeah, you know, there's cons and pros to everything, but I am fortunate, and I thank my parents. Uh, even today, I said, listen, you know, you've given me a world view. I, 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 I am a world citizen. Yes, I'm an American, but I also would like to extend further than that 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 we are we are not just limited to our nationalities you know mm-hmm. and and that i have to give completely credit to the exposure that my father's job uh, enabled us to to get that perspective wow. and 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 we carry it in the next generation i mean my for example my nephew uh, he's getting his master's in the states, so he's now, you know, completely obviously French, and you know, he's, he's struggling with his English, but he's absolutely learning it well enough to go to university here to get a master's in fine arts. So, and then my daughter is fascinated to go to France. She's doing very well in Spanish, but now wants to speak French. So it's interesting to see that our respective children are now embracing the other half of the whatever culture they're not exposed to. Absolutely. And do you ever do you ever go back there? I mean, do you ever kind of oh, sure, retrace, sure, sure, sure. retrace your path as a child? Yes. Uh, actually, I, I, I have gone often to where we were raised. Um, it's changed and yet not changed. That's the great thing about Europe. There, it's sort of a historical their their time clock is historical so it moves very slowly um and i am lucky that my brother has set his life 
in in the city that my sister was born in and where we were raised. So I'm able to go and visit. I still have friends who are there. Um, and then he, you know, so we have that wonderful sort of back and forth. And now that his son is in Los Angeles, I get to see my brother more often uh, than I used to because he's more motivated to come over here <laughs> to see his son. So we actually had a wonderful surprise Christmas where um, on Christmas Day, I have two little guys now. Uh, I have four kids, and uh, I have now a oh, almost five and a one-year-old. And we were coming home after all the visits of all the relatives with uh, the little guys. And I don't know, we were bushed, and it was about, I don't know, 4.35, dark. We enter the kitchen, and guess who says, surprise! And it's my <laughs> brother, his wife, and his two French kids. So it, it was. It, we had a great, great uh, Christmas because everybody, you know, we all spent time together. I bet. You know, a, a mutual friend of ours told me that your brother is an is an accomplished opera singer. Well, you, you know, it's amazing how you get that. <laughs> but yes, he is an accomplished opera singer. He's a professional opera singer. Absolutely. And he's incredible. also a professor of voice, operatic voice, at the Conservatory of Paris. Uh, as well as his wife, who is a professor of the piano. So that's how they met. They uh, they met in a master class. He was a young operatic student. She was the pianist assigned to the master class in Germany. And that's how their love story began. Unbelievable. Yep. Now, do you, do you have this talent as well? Do you, I mean, you obviously haven't explored it professionally, but... But do you sing as well, or, or is this a like a quirk in the no? In the, it's actually uh, DNA it's it's a, an interesting question, Brandon, because you know as twins, everybody's fascinated about what this twin thing Absolutely, is. Absolutely, exactly. So every time that he had a new voice teacher, and the voice teacher found out that he had a twin, I was yanked into the class or to the lesson, and I was asked to sing uh, the scales. So in essence, I do have the vocal instrument. I just never had the training. <laughs> and I've done a lot of what I call Broadway, off-Broadway musicals, you know, belt them out. Uh-huh. But certainly I don't sound like my brother. And it's more, you know, I, I can be heard, let's put it that way, but he sounds <laughs> a lot prettier than I can. I got you. Produce. Wow. So, did you always want to know you wanted? Did you always know you wanted to be an actor early on? Was it? When did? You know when did come? I, you know, it's. Just, it, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I knew I was always a creative child, you know, an artistic child, because, you know, in the early days, I was always outside. I was always an outdoor kid, and I was one of these weird kids that I wanted to, um, you know, see how plants grew or. Um, I grafted plants as a kid. Now, why? I don't know. I just was fascinated about how nature worked, and I would graft, you know, successfully and obviously unsuccessfully, some plants, you know. And I had a garden, and I was always building stuff. Um, then I would say, like, pre-teens, through adolescence, 
I went into painting. You know, I was really, my mother, our mother was an artist, and she was of the abstract expressionistic school, and she studied under Hans Hoffmann. So there was a lot of art exposure in our home because of our mother. So I, I really loved, I was, um, uh, for example, you know, I, I, I loved acrylics and oils, and I went into charcoal. Then I went into that ink blot from the uh, Asian tradition, and I and charcoal and um, pastels and ceramics and the potting wheel and stained glass, and I sculpted, and I, I loved all that. So when um, how I came to acting was sort of accidental. It was in high school, and I was good for soccer because, you know, basically French kids, all they do is play soccer. Um, are you there? I am here. Okay, because I, I, I heard the voice, and I never, I, 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 you know, I didn't know if I was still on. Sorry it's about a, that. It's a weird quirk in the system, and hopefully they're addressing it, and we'll have it solved. Okay, no, no worries. I apologize. I, it was dead silent, and I went, uh-oh, maybe I'm off. <laughs> Um, so in high school, they did these children theater. So the first, um, play that I did was the Wizard of Oz. Wow. And the, they couldn't get guys because it was all girls. It was a co-ed high school. They couldn't get guys to do the play. And, you know, I, I was an athlete and I was a co-captain of the soccer team and I didn't see a big deal about, you know, going on stage and, you know, putting on tights or, you know, and, and all the pretty girls were there. So that's how I came to acting, to tell you the truth. And then, um, then the next year was Peter Pan and there was Captain Hook and I played Captain Hook. And then... Who, who did you play in Oz? Who did you play? I played Professor Marvel. Excellent. And the, uh, and the Wizard. <laughs> so, and all of a sudden, you know, it, it kind of bled in, you know, uh, athletics and theater was, to me, uh, the same thing, except that in theater, you used your voice as well. And I'm a very physical actor, so to me, the athletic part helped my physical acting. And then I realized I could be heard. And then I could, you know, develop these wonderful characters that were parts of me, but not of me. Or they're of me, but they're extensions of me. Or, or you know, it's an interesting thing being an actor. You, you wonder where it all comes from. Yeah, and then um, I got the bug, and then it you know I just went right through. I went through undergraduate as a theater arts major, philosophy, uh, a dual humanity major, and then I went and got uh, uh, a master's of fine arts, and then I t I went to New York, and I was blessed. I was one of those blessed stories where in about three weeks I got an agent and then I was on Broadway and uh, then I got my first soap opera, The Doctors. Wow. And then it just uh, it just went along that way. 
And was your family supportive of of your decision, or was there resistance? Um, there was quiet reserve. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think my mother, obviously, and my father understood that as a child, I was always creative and artistic. So it was no surprise that it would be in the arts. They didn't quite understand how I ended up on national television. <laughs> uh, uh, they obviously preferred that I do, you know, the circle in the square and classical theater than um, the soap operas. <laughs> But, uh, you know, they were very supportive and, I, I would say, interested and amused and followed it uh, with keen interest. Wow. And did, did they speak English at all or no? Well, no, they, oh, no, no. They, they speak English and actually we all kind of, uh, we, we, we do this uh, ensalada de lenguas. You know, we do this salad, the salad niçoise of languages. So, depending on the mood, you know, we all sort of communicate in French, Spanish, and English. <laughs> <laughs> Must make for interesting times. In your it is. You know, something comes up and, you know, it's in French. And, for example, my name in my family is, uh, my father always calls me Nicolas. My mother calls me Nicolas, which is the French version of Nicholas. Um, and just... You know, there's no reason. It's just how how it how it evolved. You know. So, would you say that the doctors was your big break, or or was there something before that 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 would qualify as your big break? Well, I I mean, for me as as a as an artistic actor, I would say my big break was playing, you know, one of my dream houses, which is Circle in the Square on Broadway. So to me, that was my big break. That I landed Stephen Undershaft in Major Barbara with incredible actors, Nicholas Sorovi, Laurie Kennedy, Philip Bosco, Rachel Gurney from Upstairs Downstairs. I mean, these are top-notch, theatrical, wonderful actors. And here's this, you know, kid, green around the ears, who didn't know what hit him, in among, you know, playing you know, my mother... Uh, in Major Barbara was played by Rachel Gurney, and what an incredible tradition she came out of, you know, the RSC and the Upstairs Downstairs uh, BBC series. Uh, it was it was unbelievable. Did Did you find that that because I mean you're you're mainly known as a soap actor. Did you find that that the daytime schedule and the theater schedule and the work between the two? had shared a, a pretty strong kinship or no? Absolutely, and I, I will always say this. I am very grateful to soap operas because to me, it is the American repertory system for actors. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we don't have the, yes, certainly we have repertory theater in the States, but it's not really akin to the English repertory system where you know, there is a bunch of actors who basically, and everything is, is is condensed because obviously England is a lot smaller than the United States. Um, but I think the the soap opera world, in that there is, you know, equal shows on the West Coast and the East Coast, it forms this repertory system. And I was 
I loved it. I felt very um, natural in it because it reminded me uh, of the English repertory system that I was exposed to, mm-hmm. that we had to get a show up come hella high water Absolutely. at the end of the day. So <laughs> there was no excuses. Sick, not sick. Uh, the lines were, were you know, uh, we were still trying to wrap ourselves around the the situation that we were asked to play, the the words flowed or didn't flow, no matter what it was, we had to get a show up. And that's what repertory theater is. You're doing three Shakespeare's, probably two comedies, one tragedy. You're doing one show and you're going, okay, what, what, what show are we doing today? And it's that kind of, you just got to get it done. And to me, it's exciting, it's fresh, and... The, the actors you play with every day become your family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it was an incredible school. It's an incredible formation. And I'm a better human being, actor, person, from having gone through all those years on all the different shows that you know I was fortunate to play. Absolutely. You know, I, I know you haven't been in it in a while, but... but you know, back in your heyday, when somebody new came in, could you tell almost by looking at them, oh, this person's going to make it, this person isn't, in terms of the grind of the of the material and the... Absolutely, absolutely, because it's, you, you have to, and this is where the background uh, helps. I mean, this is where the flexibility, the adaptability, sure. because, you know, I remember the first time I, I approached it, I approached it from a theatrical point of view. So the night before, I had memorized my lines. So at 7 a.m., you come in, you're memorized, and guess what? All of a sudden, the director says, okay, we're going to cut this, this, this. This doesn't work. We have to cut the show to meet the time. Um, the blocking has changed. And I got completely lost because I came at it from a theatrical point of view where you had to memorize and the word is sacred, and you will not change any line of Shakespeare or of Shaw because they're geniuses. But in soap opera, guess what? <laughs> you know, you have to change your mind. So it, it took me about, I don't know, three months to understand that I'd had to change my approach to it. And I, you know, as I was, you know, in the grind and as I was mastering the medium, I was able to memorize 40 pages of dialogue in about two to three hours. Wow. And the reason is is that your mindset had to be completely in the present, in the now, so that, you know, I was like a, a sponge, and the director has, has his or her point of view. And uh, there was a time factor, and then you could, I instinctively knew where to cut the fat and I would say, okay, I think the director's going to cut this, 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 and this, mm-hmm. because I was exposed to it long enough that, and they had to meet the time requirements of a show. So pretty much I got the knack of cutting before I came into the rehearsal room. And then we had the blocking, and the minute, because I'm, I'm a physical actor, the minute I memorized the moves with the words, then I knew that the words would follow, and then I just had to buckle down and get the words. <laughs> and then I, I'm a big believer in rehearsal, so anybody who worked with me always knew that we would rehearse. 
So as we were getting makeup, I'd sit next to Fiona, if we were Max Holden, and we would run lines. Or I'd go into her dressing room, or she'd visit me in my dressing room. We would just run, run, run. And then we'd know, okay, we got that scene down, but this one's a little, uh, we're just not, it's not flowing emotionally. It's not, we're not connecting the words to the feelings. So we had to find out what the, you know, what was holding us back, what was challenging us, what were the obstacles, and that's how we got it. And 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 I was very fortunate to be with some great leading ladies. I mean, from Deborah Barantino to via Fiona Hutchinson, you couldn't ask better ones, you know, or Jess Walton James, who's still doing uh, Y and R, you know. Absolutely. And and. We 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 got you know we got to each other. We connected, and uh, if you're blessed with that connection, then then the, then the job is not a job. It's it, it's a it's a pleasure to come to work every day. And the material kind of takes on a life of its own. Well, yeah, and then you know it's, it's interesting because it, it's what I called a controlled improv. Daytime is so fast. And there's so many elements. The writers give you the skeleton, the story points, the 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 body, and then you we basically disassemble it, and the director obviously makes it flow better, and for his cameras, and for his point of view, and for the time. And then the actors, we who are the characters, who bring it life and flesh and blood. We then put our twists and turns on it and, you know, change the rhythm and the sequence of words and maybe some of the words so that we we make it emotionally true. Mm-hmm. And But yet we carry the writer's point of views and their, and their sets. And then this wonderful sort of amalgam happens where the writers start to get to go into our heads as actors. And then they start writing to our rhythms and our sort of instincts and our uh, spurts and spats. And then when we're all sort of in that wonderful amalgam, then you have a winning storyline. You have you have a hit. You have a story that the audience just craves and, and wants to know what's the next. You know what's what's next? What's happening? I mean, that's what I regret today. You know, uh, I I I like everybody else would like to know. Hey, what's what's going to happen? You know, is this? And and now I don't know. Before I was in the know. <laughs> but I, you know, I don't I don't miss the the you know the hours and the makeup and the hair and all the lines. But I do miss that. I do miss. Hey. <laughs> What's what's gonna happen? Who, who who's gonna go with who? And then uh, you know, is that gonna is that person gonna be you know killed or you know et cetera? Like everybody else. Absolutely. So I have a friend named Connie, and she wrote a column for Soap Opera Weekly for years called Critical Condition uh, under a pen name. And um, I befriended her on on Facebook recently, and she sent me a note today wanting me to ask you a couple of questions. And okay. I'm going to save one of them for later, but but the first one she wanted me to ask was, uh, how was it working for John Conboy, the quote-unquote slave driver on Capitol? Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you that out of all the executive producers, and I will say I will even extend myself primetime, sitcoms, wow. um, 
even even independent movies, and I've done all of them. By far, I love John Conboy, and yes, he's a slave driver, but you know what? Why? He is committed to excellence, excellence, excellence. And I am, I am very much of that school, and by far, I think why Capital stood out the way it stood out was his commitment to excellence. And he, he's a class act, and he demanded class from all of us. And out of all the daytimes I've done, and they were all great, all of them, uh, it was my best experience. And, and, and it, it was, I think, just what he brought. You know, he brought old stars like Richard Egan and Cor, um, Rory Calhoun and Connie Calhoun, Howard and Ed Nelson and on and on. And, and just to have them bring that class, that historical perspective to us youngins, I think we were so fortunate to be exposed to old Hollywood um, that I'll never, you know, I'll never forget it. Uh, Carolyn Jones, who played the original Myrna Clegg, uh, followed by wonderful Marge Doucet. I mean, you know, you 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 can't you can't help but being imprinted by that. And I and I owe it to John Conboy. And I was, you know, I I saw John recently. About, I would say, nine months ago, uh, the best director of daytime was Bill Glenn. And he had a, a very quick sort of um, death, and we were at his memorial. And I was able to see Connie Towers and John Conboy, and it was, it was wonderful to see them under, obviously, sad and unfortunate circumstances. Really cool. but, um, I will always tilt my hat to John Conboy. And and he gave me one of my favorite, most complex characters to play. I mean, Trey Clegg was was a doozy. I love <laughs> playing playing that character. And and no. you know, and I wish the show was still on. You know, it it uh, it it was. You know, it's funny how sometimes there's more drama behind the scenes that that men were playing on the scene. Uh-huh. But you know, there's you know we we were sort of a. You know the, the 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 political landscape of daytime is complex, and uh, you know I, I think we 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 were shorted. You know it was a wonderful five years, but uh, there was no reason when I see all these shows that Capital could not continue. You know, absolutely. And you know that that show was a hit at the time when it was taken off the air. It was a hit. I know exactly, and and it was number one in Italy. It was the first daytime that ever hit. Europe and uh, but you know we we all there there are reasons for all that that sometimes we don't know and uh, we're I always say you know God's my employer so uh, I'm very fortunate to have ex- been exposed to all of that and I'm um, and look where I am today so absolutely you know look what look what it all made possible for you to do exactly after, after the show went off the air exactly exactly you know. Connie Towers was was a guest on a friend of mine's show. My friend Joanne has a show called Stardish. Uh-huh. And uh, Connie Towers was a guest of hers back in December. And I got to call in and ask her if she thought that, that maybe Capital was a little bit ahead of its time, considering all the political scandals that erupted in the late 80s and in the 90s, and even today. I mean, you know, do you think that, that it was maybe just a little bit ahead of its time? I, I think it was. And it's fascinating how 
life imitates art. You know, it's, it's that seamless transition that you never know if art is imitating life or life is imitating art. And to me, uh, it was a perfect arena for soap opera. I mean, look at the soap opera that continues in real Washington, D.C. I know. So, you know, yeah, I, I think it was ahead of a time, and, and maybe that's why, I, I don't know. It, 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 there are a lot of unanswerables to, to why certain shows last and some shows don't, you know, and... Uh, to me, I think it the, the 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 exploratory capability of having a show set in our nation's capital, you couldn't have a better stage. <laughs> and you know, I mean, you're exactly right. And you know, if you talk about, if you talk about, everybody knows what Washington D.C. is. I mean, yep. you can find anybody in the remotest part of the globe, and they know what Washington D.C. is. So it almost becomes like the the uh, uh, its own character within the show. It almost becomes you know with with all the all the great buildings and all the you know. Oh, absolutely, and and I'll never you know one of my fondest memories is our first show was filmed as a primetime pilot um, to follow Knott's Landing, and. We did it all in Washington, D.C., and I'll remember, you know, we were near the Lincoln Memorial, and I told my driver in a limousine to run down Connie Towers. <laughs> that, was my first, that was my first exposure <laughs> as Trey Clegg, and I went, whoa, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have these wonderful memories, um, and then... Um, uh, David Mason Daniels, who played Tyler McCandless, and I were asked to jump as high as we could in front of the Capitol. And this photographer t uh, from Life Magazine took our picture, wow. and we were there. We are in Life Magazine, jumping with the Capitol dome behind us. So, you know, I, 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 I have some wonderful memories. And tell me this: Did 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 you? At that at that time, did you think, well, all the shows are run like this, or were you kind of sophisticated enough by then to know that you were pretty lucky to be on this show? No, I time? I knew, I knew. Well, you see, it's interesting. When we were in the auditioning process, they had me audition for Tyler McCandless, the hero, and I went, oh no 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 no, I really don't want to play a hero. I, you know, because all you do is, you know, you're a good guy, <laughs> and to me. The bad guy is much more interesting as an actor to play because you play all these nuances. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't play evil because when you're evil, it's boring. It's just basically a man who's very complex and has all these conflictual sides in him who's struggling to be a good person, but he has strong desires and 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 he's compelled to do some pretty interesting behavior. <laughs> So when they had me audition for Trey, I was like, oh, no, this is the role. This is the role. And and when I got cast, I knew I was very lucky to be cast in that role because I knew that was the role. Wow. And then I knew that it was different than all the other daytimes because of all this, what I call, old Hollywood that John wanted to bring to the cast. 
Mm-hmm. And I also knew that John Conboy was very different. And then Stockton Briggle, who was our line producer, came from the theater. So there was an appreciation of my background. Wow. And, um, no, I knew from the get-go that this was a special show, a special group of of actors and a special a special show. You know, it was one of those great combinations, timing, blessing, uh, that we were all graced with. Absolutely. You know, you talk about theater. Most of that cast, the lion's share of that cast had a theatrical background, if I'm not mistaken. And that's because John Conboy insisted on that. Wow. So after Capital Folded, you did stints on General Hospital and Young and the Restless, and then Paul Rouse lured you to One Life to Live to play a vastly different Max Holden than what uh, the original actor James DeFiva had created. Um, Correct. And I was really reticent to play such a pivotal role on a very successful soap opera. You know, I, I, I said, listen, I, I, I was around enough to realize that, you know, replacing a lead character that people loved, and James DePiva's Max Holden, was a very popular character. You bet. You bet you. And I said, listen, I'm not going to play James DePiva's Max Holden. I can't. So, uh, must I really do this? <laughs> and, I, I, and I had a lot of um, sort of... I don't know, resistance to, to doing it because I knew it was a tall, tall order to come. And I also know daytime. I also know the acting journey. And I, I understood that James wanted, James wanted to explore his chops in different mediums, and he had huge success as Max Holden. But I would always be the second Max Holden. I would always mm-hmm. be... Um, and, you know, as history proved it, guess what? You know, James DeViva came back <laughs> to play Max Holden. So all my instincts were correct, but I also love a challenge. And, you know, if we don't sort of roll up our sleeves and just go in there, then what's the point of living is my point mm-hmm. of view. I, I, I love taking challenges, even though it's an uphill, you know, struggle and ultimately – it didn't work out because James came back and the audience, I guess, wanted James's Max Holden over mine. And that's fine. Uh, but it was interesting to present um, a different Max Holden. Absolutely. You know, in, in, terms of, in terms of the acting company and, I mean, you know, forget, forget the fact that, that uh, you know, you're replacing a popular actor, but just in terms of the actors you worked with, and the material you were given, were those tough shoes to walk into? It was. Were you welcomed by that cast with open arms, or, or were they a little standoffish with you coming into to this iconic role? I think a little bit of both. I mean, some were very welcoming. Uh, some were, were of the school, well, let's see how, what he does. Who is this guy? <laughs> and is he nuts enough to think he can do this? <laughs> Which, I, you know, I, I think, honestly, that's what I would think, too. I mean, it's an iconic role. James, you know, had huge success in that role. And I took it on because it was a challenge. And I did, you know, my very best. And Paul Rausch, you know, saw that I could bring 
a whole different element to it, and um, and I think I did, you know. Um, Absolutely. Um, and still today, I get some feedback about, you know, well, we love James, but we also loved, you know, what you brought to Max, and uh-huh. and and I think it's it's very hard on a show when such an iconic character leaves, because. You're the character, and then I understand it because I, I was thinking if I left Capital, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think the only person that really pulled it off was Peter Bergman uh, in uh, Y&R because Terry Lester was that character. Yeah, was Jack Abbott, yeah. And Terry, wonderful, complex, nuanced, uh, actor and intelligent, and I'm like, ooh, those are tough shoes to fill too. But Peter did it; he was able to do it, and that's a rare occurrence. And um, I don't know, you know, you and never. The know. funny thing about the funny thing about that is Peter was such a nice guy on All My Children that yep. you didn't really know what he was capable of when he left that show because he only played one ter- one color on that show. Yeah, but the color, for example, of Good Guys is that. And that's what, that's a perfect example. Peter is a perfect example of an actor who has all the capability of playing all the levels, but if you're saddled with playing the good guy, <laughs> you're kind of caught. Mm-hmm. And that's all. You play that one note, or you try to obviously nuance the note of good, but it's much more interesting. And ask Peter, he, he loves he loves Jack Abbott. I think better than the ABC character that he played. I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, for years as well, and beautifully as well. So you never, you never know. You know, you dream of a career as the career happens, and uh, you know, uh, James had all the the wherewithal to, you know, hit on prime time or the movies, and you know, it didn't happen. So he wanted to come back to daytime, and rightfully so, and. You know, and and again, I thank my my journey because of where I'm today. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned working with with John Conboy, who was who was notoriously a tough producer, but you also worked with Paul Roush on two shows, and uh, he's got a pretty strong reputation as well as as being tough to work for. But but, but look, uh, but look at those producers and how many Emmys they have garnered. <coughs> I, you know. <coughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I, as having my own business, I am a slave driver too. <laughs> and to get quality, to maintain quality, and to have a commitment to excellence, you know what? Great school. <clears throat> and I'm grateful. I never thought that John or Paul were unreasonable. They had high standards, they had professional standards, and they demanded that everybody met it. And you know what? I love that. And that's that's the school where I come from, and I will always say it was a great privilege, an honor, and I am grateful today to have experienced the, the two tough ones, or if not the two most tough ones. I, I think you're right about that. I think that you know their, their reputations... Uh, respectively, are are unparalleled in in the genre, I believe. Exactly, and look what they did Absolutely. under their their stewardship. Absolutely. That they brought uh, a new level, a new 
uh, standard of excellence, and you can't go there if you are not tough. And uh, and not to say they're wonderful people as well. You know, once mm-hmm. you delivered and you you agreed to their commitment to excellence, I, I couldn't have had a more warm, loving, um, paternal relationship of uh, producers from Paul Rausch to John Conboy. Wow. So I, I will always tilt my hat to both of them. Talk about Paul as a producer. What kind of feedback did you get from him? What kind of producer was he? Was he was he on set a lot? Was he hands-on? He was. He'd come to me and whisper uh, very strong direction in my ear. He would watch, and he'd say, okay, you know, you can, you're playing safe. And I love that. I love that as an actor where, you know, you're, you have so much emotions, you know, raging and, and tumbling through you. You never know how far to take it, you know. And you don't know if it's appropriate. You don't know if it's safe. You don't know if it's, if it's too much. So when, when I have a producer who comes and whispers me in the ear and says, listen, you know, take you know, Gabrielle and make her your woman. He goes, okay. <laughs> I, that's a pretty strong direction, mm-hmm. you know? Or he'll say, I don't care about the censors. Do you want this woman like you've never wanted a, a woman? So, you know, I go, thank you. That was clear. <laughs> and and then and, and same thing with John, where he'll say, you know, uh, you want you want to obliterate this person, <laughs> and that's that's all he would say. Yeah. Or he would say, handle her, physically handle her, <laughs> and I go, got it. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, um, they were strong directors. They had strong points of views. And they were strong communicators of their strong points of views. And that's why their shows stood out. Absolutely. So no, I, 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 it was a pleasure. And I never felt that they were like, understand, you know, from the theater, you can't be half memorized. You've got to be memorized. You can't be half prepared. You can't have your block blocking sort of half memorized. You gotta come ready to rock and roll. Absolutely, and you know, don't don't you find it liberating when you do know the material inside out? I mean, doesn't Absolutely. that doesn't and that that's, really open that's, you up? You got it, and that's where the magic happens. Then you're not struggling to remember the lines. You're not creaning your neck. You know, everybody says how unfair of John Conboy to take the cue cards off set. <laughs> I loved it because guess what? When you were in the scene. You, you were in the scene. You bet. And you didn't deal with an actor when the camera was off of him or her craning their necks to read the <laughs> lines. And I was like, that's what threw me in the doctors. You know, and there is a technique and an artistry to that, that there were some very fine actors who would do 
you know, whole scenes who have gone, who have gotten Emmys, and we would used to joke and call them reading for dollars. <laughs> they would just sit there and read for dollars, and and you go, wow, and they've kind of developed this zone look where they wouldn't look at you, they wouldn't look at the cue card, they would be in the zone somewhere, and everybody said, oh, that's pretty interesting. What is he doing? And all he's doing is reading for dollars. <laughs> so, you know what? G- good for them, but that's not where I come from. I come from where I want to be in that magic envelope where the lines are in our bodies, in our cells, in our emotions, in our breath, and we go for it. And it's like catching the wave. It's like surfing. You know, I've never surfed a real wave, but I've certainly surfed many emotional waves. And sometimes when you're on that wave and it carries you through, there's no better feeling. And I was fortunate, you know, I I was able to do that uh, more often than not. No question about it, absolutely. So on One Life, after, after Paul was fired and Linda Gottlieb came in, I, you know, I've, I've heard kind of, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but, you know, I've heard kind of kind of reports since then that, you know, morale on set changed markedly. Um, markedly. How did, how did you find it? Well, you said it. Uh, we knew that the genius of Paul Rausch, who brought me to the show, who amped the fire between... Max and Gabrielle, who who created that whole storyline, mm-hmm. was going to be diluted, watered down, and we were going to go down. You know, mm-hmm. and not uh, to say Linda Gottlieb is is a great executive producer as well, but. When you you make such a strong change of command, it has a domino factor. It can't help it. Absolutely. You know, she's inheriting stories that she may or may not respond to. It's her right as executive producer to change as she sees fit. And you go through that that what we call the 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 transition period, and when that transmission that transition period is neither fish or fowl. It's sort of this: what are we doing? We don't know. We're going to find out. We're you know everybody's mm-hmm. kind of floating. Mm-hmm. And that's when you lose points, and audiences are like, what's going on? And mm-hmm. the actors are going, uh oh, and we might be get fired, and you know all of that. And that's what happens in daytime. Absolutely. That's why it's very important to have strong leadership, like a John Conboy, like a Bill Bell. My only regret is I never worked under Bill Bell. I mean, I did very shortly with Jason Monroe at YNR, but uh, it, it, it nothing took off on that, you know. Um, yeah, you know, the way that show is structured, and especially back then under under Bill Bell's tutelage, um, you know, you, new people didn't come into that show very often because, you know, it was it was so that show was so deliberately paced and so yep. marvelously constructed that, you know, it, it, this, it, it was the same old stalwarts because the same old stalwarts worked on that show. I mean, exactly. you know, they were the magic of that show, and so for new people to come in 
it didn't happen very often. You had to make a real big splash. Correct, correct. And and uh, I think that, you know, we tried. Uh, he invited me. He wanted me to. But, uh, you know, it just never – and that was one of my, my, my regrets. And understand that Bill Bell was also the mentor to John Conboy. Absolutely. So to me, uh, Bill Bell is the grandfather of the best of the best of executive producers. <laughs> So after Paul went to Santa Barbara, did he bring you over there, or did you audition for that part uh, on your own, the part of Frank Goodman on Santa Barbara? I auditioned for that part. Okay. You know, because we all kind of thought at the time that, that, you know, Paul being in charge of Santa Barbara now and, you know, knowing your work from one life to live, that he brought you over. But Well, yes, but understand, he, he did want me there, but... He's only executive producer. I have to prove myself to a whole other network. Absolutely. NBC and the daytime president, vice president, and that that whole the executives. You know, mm-hmm. and can 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 this guy play a deranged charm blesser? <laughs> now, Paul, no. understanding theater and artistic, you know, theatrical actors, understood that, you know, I could go there, but. It, you know, we have to convince the executive producers of, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the executives at NBC. Absolutely. You know, you had a very ugly, very demanding part to play on that show. How tough was it for you to find the truth in that role? Well, I knew that this person as deranged and off-kilter that he was, I had to find the humanity I had to find the child that he, as a child, was molested as well. I said the only way that I could move people or to go to the pain that I tried to express in the role was that he, as a child, was molested savagely as well. And, you know, as one creates a character, you do a whole history on the character, and that was part of my background uh, emotional work on that particular character. How much information were you let in on when you were hired to play that part? Didn't they, were they completely upfront with you about what you were going to be playing, what the story was going to be? Yes and no, because I think they really don't know. Okay. <laughs> they said a child molester, but they... You know, it's like it's like a train, a, a locomotive. It's a slow leaving the station, and then when the story reaches a momentum and a, and it clicks with the audience and the actors click with one another, it it it, it creates a whole other it, it, life. Yeah. You know, it just takes off. As we said earlier, it kind of takes on a life of its own. It's, exactly. Exactly yeah. correct. And I we- had to. I always wanted to go back to his pain. He he was acting out of pain. And I think that's kind of true of human beings, you know, even criminals and you know, real child molesters and rapists and whatever, they all are acting out of pain. Not out of evil. Yes, their act is evil or we deem it evil, but they actually act out of deep pain. Wow. And that's what I had to always go back to. You know, 
he's doing this because he's in real deep pain. Absolutely. And he's trying to make right the the pain that's inside of him or neutralize the pain inside of him that he's feeling with the act that he's doing now and he doesn't see it the same way. He's not he, <clears throat> he's not um in his mind, understand this, in his mind molesting the young girl. Mm-hmm. He's treating her nicely and with love. And you, you, you have to, as an actor, to deliver a character of complexity and uh, a morality like that. You have to get into that mindset that he doesn't see it at all as mol- molesting a child. He's just extending love to that person. Absolutely. Were you ever afraid that some of that material would be too tough to sit through for for the audience? Because, I mean, that's that was not, tough material in that story. Yeah, that's not my job as an actor to worry about. I never worry about that. Because okay. my job is if I play the truth of the scene that the writers have given me, <coughs> I will then <coughs> deliver something for an audience to react to, be it good or bad. I mean, they may hate me. I got a lot of hate mail. Uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. But then I feel then I did my job. See, we don't, you know, as as actors, we don't worry about how we land with an audience because we do our fourth wall, and the audience isn't really not there. We're not really doing it to an audience. We are just really playing the scene that the writer has asked us to play. Absolutely. And the, the basically the, the, the audience are voyeurs looking in to a slice of life. It is their choice to shut the television or mm-hmm. stay glued and be horrified, but it's their choice. If it's inappropriate for them, then then turn the TV off. Wow. That's, that's an interesting perspective that, you know, I haven't... I'll, I'll confess I haven't heard anybody really kind of... Uh, Vocalize it like that. I've I've never you know, that's that's interesting. That's an interesting take on, on what soap actors do. What what actors do. Period. Yep. How did you hit it off with with uh, A. Martinez and Sidney Penny and Kim Zimmer and you know the the kind of core people that you worked with? Well, it's interesting. Kim Zimmer, I it was a reconnection because Kim and I started on the Doctors, so it was a very interesting, sort of full circle for me as an actor in daytime because I began my daytime with Kim Zimmer and I ended my daytime with Kim Absolutely. Zimmer. Absolutely. So, and then I always uh, had uh, a love and a respect of A. Martinez's work. It was always so grounded, so um, full of humanity. Never so, hit a false note. Not once. So truthful, I was going to say. And, uh, um, it was a privilege to work with him again. And the great Sidney Penny, who you had, you know, some tough toughs with. Um, did did you guys kind of connect off stage, or or were you standoffish with each other? As, in terms of you know, maybe kind of helping the scene along. Because she was, I mean, she was very kind of afraid of you and 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 shy around you. So, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, 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 am, I, I, I am one of those actors that if I have to play difficult scenes like that, I have to sort of keep my, my distance from the actor. Gotcha. Um, because then it makes it more difficult. And then that was sort of a lonely uh, show for me to do, but it's, uh, it was actually fitting as my last daytime show because it was transitioning out of daytime. And I came to work every day, and I basically, you know, stayed with myself yeah. and and did not socialize as much as I used to or do with people because I'm a people person. I love people and I love actors. So um, I kept to myself most of the time. Did you somehow know that was going to be your last daytime show or – I mean, did did you plan it that way, or did it just kind of? I, no, I I I never, you know, I, I as 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 a as an artistic person, you you never know. You just you know you you come from the premise of being open to the yes in your life, oh. and what the journey is going to, what your life's journey is going to be. So, I I kept saying, why why am I hitting shows that are either getting off the air or I am I have closed two shows. Capital I closed down and, and the Santa Barbara and at the time I said, Well well, you know, I, I it appeared that I was unlucky. You know, why didn't I have a show that would last fifty years <laughs> and I would I would grow old in my role. But that's why I always say God is my employer because God had bigger and better plans for me. Mm-hmm. And um but at the time, it was it was like, oh, you know, why why do I have to hit another show, and why do I have to play such a despicable character as this guy? And uh, you know, he he can only end up, you know, dead. So, but he, then you let go of all that. That's your ego and your your fear as 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 an actor who wants employment. And then you say, okay, then I've been asked to play this. I, I have to learn something from this role. And I have to really enter this person, yeah. and I did. You know, you certainly did. No question about it. Um, it it's you know I asked you that question just because from from the way you were from the way you were talking about it, it seems as though you almost had a sense that that this was going to be your last soap. Yeah, I mean, I, intuitively, yes. Not that it was a you know a, a conscious choice. Because, for example, if I got a call from Bill Bell and say, hey, we have this terrific character, would you like to play against Victor Newman? And I go, you bet. <laughs> In a heartbeat. Uh, you know, uh, of course. So, but intuitively it just felt that it was, uh, it was right. I, I played a, a very pain-filled, painful character. Um, I try to be as true and raw as what the writers asked me to be, and I did it with integrity. Um, and then, you know, there's that inner dialogue as an actor. It's like if you really so, show all the warts and the ugliness and all that we all have, but as an actor you, you have a choice to really expose the negative 
part of yourselves, um, would that be sort of sealing my tomb, that I would never be invited again to do daytime? Um, so, you know, it's interesting. And then, you know, after that, I did a lot of prime time, the sitcoms, mm-hmm. and everybody thought I was a soap actor. And I, I hate labels. So I love when Ooh. there's always a, a new opportunity where, you know, oh, he's a soap actor, he can't do sitcoms. And then <laughs> I, I, I did, you know, Seinfeld and Frasier and, you know, all the sitcoms. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, he's a sitcom actor. <laughs> you know? And then it's like, oh, here's another label. So then I said, no, you know what? Let's do. And then I got into independent films and and uh-huh. and, and did 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 that. So, you know, again, it's 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 brought me to where I am today. So, you know, I mentioned my friend Connie earlier, and the other question she had for me to ask you was about Seinfeld. You did a hilarious guest shot. I believe it was the final season or the next to the last season of the show. No, it was uh, the final season. It was the final season and it, actually the second last show. It was the second to last oh. of the shows. And, and you were one of Elaine's boyfriends who kind of cherished his his very simple, very utilitarian lifestyle, uh, yep. so to speak. Um, how did you find working on that show with that cast? Was that I lo- I loved it. I I really loved it. Uh, again. They appreciate uh, what I call a theatrical-based actor um, because it was interesting. You know, he was poor and he was, you know, down and out and kind of living out of the garbage can. So loved I loved it. Sorry, but loved it. I mean, he, he... and loved it exactly. And he, he, it was his lifestyle. He, he embraced it. <laughs> and um, so for the audition, you know, I didn't shave and I. You know, they didn't wash, and I kind of didn't look, you know, that great. And I kind of wore, you know, pants with holes in them, and and a, a trench coat that I, you know, I put in dirt that I actually picked out of a garbage uh, can. And I really just kind of went in that way, and I went, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, <laughs> because everyone, you know, there was all the leading men there of Hollywood, so mm-hmm. one better looking than another. All in that what I call the classic, uh, you know, leading man um, uh, uniform. You know, the leather jacket and then the mm-hmm. tight pants and the tight shirt and the beautiful hair and the beautiful teeth and the chiseled looks. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I was thinking, but I guess I'm 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 smoking something different here. <laughs> so, but you know, there I was, you know, and uh, and I went in, did the audition, and. And it was a Saturday, um, and and it was interesting because uh, you know seldom you have auditions on Saturday. And they said, uh, you know, at the end uh, we would tell you who would be cast. So, you know, I went in, I would say, in the early part, and I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to get this one. So I was on my way out, and they said, well, why are you leaving? I said, well, I, I just don't think I'm, I'm you know, I, I just don't think I got this one, you know. I said, well, maybe you should just hang around. So at the end, they called out the people who got the roles, and I got the role. <laughs> I was like, wow. I, I, you know, talk about the roller coaster ride of thinking, well, you blew it, and then you got it. <coughs> so you never know. You really never know. Did and you love well, Julia? I love Julia. And and it was slated, I, I was supposed to be the new boyfriend. It was going to be like a you know, a, a, a role that they would have explored with her. Okay. And, uh, but we were, 
the, the, the second to last show of a closing season. So I never had the pleasure to, to explore that with her. And, uh, you know, that, that's also one of my regrets. But um, I was also blessed to do Seinfeld. So. And then the bear claw scene, uh, that was sort of an improv. It was like, you know, it wasn't in the script. And they said, well, you know, let's do something outside. Let's, uh, let's I don't know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's have an improv. <laughs> and and we kind of just came up with that ourselves, so it, it was it was uh, it was fun to to do to work that way, That's and funny. very welcoming. And and they are from the theater as well, so there is that sort of recognition of of your background when when you see each other. Absolutely, you know that show lives forever in syndication. I mean, it's to this day it still runs twice a oh, day. Oh yeah, so it's classic. No, <laughs> you know, it's a. Give or, give a, a I would put it in the Mary Tyler Moore classic. No question. And I love Lucy and the Honeymooners. I mean, it's going to live forever it. and ever and ever and ever. You got it. Absolutely. Do you, do you ever run across your episode in, in, in passing sometimes and, and just kind of marvel at the fact that you were there? I I have not, but I sometimes now in in, in, in my life of as a landscape designer and a design ambassador for Kathy Ireland Worldwide, I get, weren't you that guy, you know, the poor guy with the donut with Julia, and, and, and it's that double take where I don't know what to say, you know, because it's, it's, it's part of my background, and so you can't deny it, but it's sort, of, it's sort of an oxymoron for the person who's asking you from some design input that you're the, the guy with the bear claw with Julia on Seinfeld. <laughs> well, and you know, the stupid thing is, it's, it's quite possible that more people saw you on Seinfeld in one night then saw you in all your years of Dave time combined. I mean, it's exactly correct. Just, just exactly the, the silly correct. way that that television works. I mean, you know, you 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 were probably exposed to a, a larger audience that one night than you were in all of your years toiling in daytime. Yep, absolutely. And that's the the incredible power of primetime television. You bet. So you walked away from acting pretty much altogether from the looks of things, and uh, kind of walked into another passion of yours. Talk about the talk about your your transition from acting to landscape design. Well, it's interesting. You know, as a kid, as I told you, I was one of those weird kids who loved to plant and graft. And I had two grandmothers who just loved gardening, and they were avid master gardeners themselves. And I was a little grandson who didn't speak English, who just loved what they loved. So they taught me all their tricks, and I would be the weeder, and I would be the waterer, and I'd be begging to prune, but I had to learn how to prune, and and thus it went. Um, and as as you know, and sometimes in daytime it's really slow in the in the dressing room there, because there's a lot of time, and you know, and I'm I, I don't like to sit still very often. Mm -hmm. So I had a design uh, build firm, a small one, in landscape architecture that I would run out of my dressing room. Oh wow! And day daytime schedules is really is convenient for that because you're on an hour show. You're either called from seven to twelve, or twelve to six. So what do you do with that other extra six hours? <laughs> so you have a another side business. So I always had a side business as I was doing daytime, more on the West Coast than the East Coast. I did a couple jobs on the East Coast, a couple of brownstones, 
uh, well, I was doing One Life, but One Life was intense because it was, you know, day after day after day after day. So, and you were a lead character on the show, wasn't you? And I was the lead character on the show, and it was 12, 12 14-hour days every day most of the time. So, you know, that didn't allow it. But when, you know, you're still lead and you're one of many leads, you know, there is breathing room. Mm-hmm. So, you know, either on my way to work, I would, you know, in the landscape world, you start at 7 a.m. So I basically worked almost a full day on my way in to do a soap. And then there's a phone in a dressing room. So I was always on the phone. And so I was able to do that for a number of years. And then... You know, and, and and it is a love. It's just, I think, another artistic expression and another way for me to express myself. And I love, I'm an outdoor nature boy. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, living in all these cosmopolitan cities, I'm really a, a, a country bumpkin, you know, who much prefer to be in nature than, you know, wow. Paris, Rome, or Italy. Uh, you know, where it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's just... Uh, but, um, and then in 2001, I had the great privilege, fortune, honor, that Kathy Ireland invited me to develop the outdoor division of her huge brand. And um, it's a home brand. How did did she find you? Do you you have any idea? I think she was familiar with my work. Um, I also did a lot of, uh, you know, this is where it's interesting. You never know where how life works. So you just exactly. get to life and you you go you go along for the ride. You know, you don't say no, you just say yes. And um where the acting helped me was that they had these HGTV shows. So I was fortunate to have the um producer who did Gardens of the World with Audrey Hepburn to do want to do a pilot with me. And it was called The Hollywood Gardener for HGTV, where I would design, install, explain a garden, uh, and tie it back to Hollywood icons, icons, uh, be it uh, places, gardens, or personalities. And it was a pilot that never sold, unfortunately, but it then that... It sounds like uh, a great concept, though. It was a great concept, and I just think the the collision of, you know, the cost of doing something for TV uh, and the actual building a garden was fighting each other all the time. You know, there, there, there's a you can't do a garden in TV time. You, you, you know, it, it takes it takes a while. Uh-huh. Um, but that enabled me to then get picked up by Oprah Winfrey. And she invited me to do a makeover in Beaverton, Oregon, where a young family would say, help, Oprah, I need some help. And so I was, again, blessed uh, to do a redo in three days for this family. And I have one-on-one with Oprah uh, discussing the landscape. So I was exposed, <coughs> I think, to Kathy that way. And then she, I guess, researched me a little bit and um, liked what she saw. 
and invited me and said, listen, uh, I don't have a green thumb, so I would like to have an expert who is a green thumb uh, help me develop the outdoor division of my brand. And my brand, I didn't know anything of this, so, uh, you know, sheepishly I said, I'm sorry, but, you know, uh, can you explain a little bit about all this? And she said, well, um, I have a growing brand. It's a baby brand. It's uh, today worth a billion and a half in sales and growing. And she says, basically, I I, I started with socks because I was a model who graced the covers of Sports Illustrated. And it would be too obvious of a choice for me to begin with swimwear. So I'd like to start from the ground up because I believe in foundation. So I started with socks. And she just sold her hundred millionth sock. And her brand now covers things like area rugs, bedding, bath accents, baby products, books. Um, I have to uh, share with you that tomorrow, April 7th, her book is going to be out. It's Real Solutions for Real Moms, correct? Is that the name of the... Yes, absolutely. And you can go on to kathyireland.com and click there and to where the book signings are. Uh, there are some all over the country. There's some back east. There's some west. And, uh, you know, her first book was Powerful Inspirations. And now this is followed by uh, her main, what drives her, her main motivation. The what, what drives us is finding solutions for families especially busy moms. And that's what everything is based in. And that's her big belief uh, because she said, I'm a busy mom. We must bring solution to her because that's what I'm committed to. And I think that's why she has such success because she has a real sensitive ear to busy mom. And And she comes from the heart and from 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 integrity, and I think Busy Mom really feels that. And uh, the London Times uh, quoted her as being Mom's best friend. Uh, so I, I think, and 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 the, her brand partners keep growing. I mean, we we go from candles to ceiling fans, ceramics, curtains, diffusers, uh, fine porcelain, flooring. Uh, foliage, trees, fresh cut flowers, uh, home office, home theater, laminates, uh, leather furniture, lighting, mattresses, uh, permanent botanical florals, and home fragrances, skin care products, uh, vertical blinds, uh, wall systems, wallpaper, wall-to-wall carpeting, window solutions, and all. And it, and it keeps growing. And, and I'm going, my God. Um, and it started with socks. And it started with socks. And and what I love about Kathy, and and truly I am blessed to have her as my boss and my leader and our CEO because she really, you know, few people really walk the talk, and she really walks the talk. She said, listen, you know, when when we, uh, she, she started with having a backpack on her back with our creative Design, uh, director John Carrasco, and they literally filled their backpacks with socks and went door to door 
and say, listen, we have these socks, and these are extraordinary socks because we took the care of really designing it so that there is good absorption, the the, the blister areas are, are addressed. I mean, a very carefully designed sock. And they were laughed at, and they were kicked out, and they were saying, you can't go around and do business like this. What are you guys thinking? And she did it. You see, this is, this is, because when she invited me to do this in 2001, she um, said, let's launch at one of the premier flower shows in the world. And I went, whoa. And I, and, and I said, well, what, what, what were you thinking, Kathy? How about the San Francisco Garden and Flower Show at the Cow Palace? And I went, whoa, I guess. Okay. Okay, you know, this woman has courage, and she, she's going for it. So we launched, and the brand, the outdoor brand um, of the portfolio of brands is Jardin du Jour, Jardin del Dia, Garden of the Day, or for short, for everybody's comfort level, but it also addresses the worldwide aspect of the brand, uh, it's Jay Duget. And yeah. the other design ambassador is Chef Andre, who develops the entertainment uh, food part of the brand. Uh, and the portfolio brand there is called A Cafe. And we're fortunate because Kathy feels that she has a brown thumb and that she can't cook. So it enables us to have great jobs. <laughs> Absolutely. And so we... And Kathy, Great jobs in, in, which, in which you can offer pretty insightful, pretty uh, uh, helpful input, I would imagine. Right, and she's very, uh, she's very welcoming that. She's a great co-colleague, uh, uh, a lot of collaboration. And when we first collaborated, uh, collaborated and co-designed for J. Duget, she said, Nicholas, I know you're competing around, uh, against some very prominent designers, some very famous people very large budgets. I mean, understand people were installing gardens that were worth $400,000, And I was thinking, why on earth would they do that? Well, because rich clientele would come to the Cow Palace and say, I would like this like it is, like the whole thing, in my front yard or backyard. And the price tag was that, and they had limestone from Italy or whatever, you know. And she said, no, we're not going to do that, Nicholas. We're going to go back to our mission statement, which is finding solutions for families, especially busy moms. And we're going to translate that into a garden. So we're going to have a very small budget. We had something like, a, I think, a six or $7,000 budget. We're going to do it eco-friendly. We're going to be using recyclable material. And I went, whoa, how, how are we going to do this? Um, and we're going to get plant materials from Los Angeles, and we're going to drive it in U-Haul trucks because we had a very tight budget. And we're going to try to make it uh, horticulturally interesting. Uh, no garden is maintenance-free, but, but, you know, mom, busy mom doesn't have a lot of time <laughs> to do gardening. Yeah. So maintenance, you know, as free as it can be, doesn't take too much water, and I went, whoa. So what we came up with 
was this what I call a delightful uh, and she has a real sensitive ear to children I mean she's a mother of three wonderful children uh, I have four so you know a garden is to be experienced by the whole family so you got to be sensitive to children and um, at the time my children came up with me and they were having a ball in all this so what we did was we brought up succulents Succulents are plant materials that travel well, and when they show stress, when they travel, their colors become crisper and they don't go limp. So that's why we went with that. Also, they're drought tolerant. Uh, they don't need much water. Um, they're easily handled. Um, we also got four tons of recyclable tumbled glass, colored glass. Uh, to use as a cover mulch. Uh, we used um, the frame of the whole show. We used canes of bamboo that we got from maintaining gardens that people had that had dead canes of bamboo. Mm -hmm. uh, we had pumps, recirculating pumps of water using recyclable copper pipes that were made to look like bamboo so there was an integrity of design and all of a sudden we created this blue green colored landscape and out of this came this amorphic uh, wonderful shaped uh, succulent uh, cacti like plant material that looked like sea urchins and mm -hmm. you, you felt you were underwater in a Dr. Zeus garden and uh, guess what? With her vision and her listening to what what mom really wants, coming out of the gate, we launched Jay Dujay with a gold medal. Wow. And that's the visionary I work for. And that's why I feel so blessed and privileged to be one of her design ambassadors. And tell me how this works. Do you, do you, do you mass market individual products? Or do you work individually one on one with with clients? How does this How does this work? Practically? What we do What we do is that we we because of her world travels as a supermodel, and I was blessed with my father's world travels. We we scour the world um, in finding again solutions for families, especially busy moms, and. She does this by saying, let's make it easy for mom. So she has developed eight style guides. And they're guides. So, and it covers the whole world. So we start, let's say, in Hawaii, in those islands. So we call it the Aloha Style Guide. Then we go to La Vida Buena, which is hot and spicy Latino Hispanic. <laughs> then we go to Americana which is the Quaker base, the Puritan lines of American traditional style. Then we go to architectural, which is New York, the Mecca city of architecture. Then we go to European country, style guide. Then we go to Far East dreams. Then we go to in Russian style guide, middle Europe, if you will, Croatia, Serbia, all of that area. And then we end up with Ivory Coast style guide. And what she does is that she makes it easy in these categories to lead mom through all her categories of home that 
let's say mom has a wonderful European country home and she knows that her furniture, her top of bed, her blankets, her wall coverings, uh, her rugs, her lighting has got to be in European country. But her husband is more of a minimalist. So his room, his office, he wants it either in the architectural style guide or in the Far East dream style guide. And that's how I think why she's so successful. She has a real sensitive, attuned ear to what mom really needs in that constricted time quote-unquote free time that mom has she wants to get to business she wants to get it done so we are we are always driven i she is another slave driver which i and i say that with all endearment and i am blessed to work for slave drivers because what slave drivers really translate to are people who are committed to excellence and what better way to live your life you know why why go at it halfway Let's give it, you know, she always says, under promise, over deliver. <laughs> and it, it, and you, you wonder, well, you know, why did I get the two slave drivers at daytime? Well, they prepped me for the best of them all, Kathy Ireland. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's that wonderful synchronicity that, you know, you can, you can start seeing as an overview in your life. And then, and, and, and let me show you. I mean, the, 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 this book, this, this wonderful book that she's come up with, which is Real Solutions for Families, and which, which, by the way, you've written a section in or a chapter yes, in. What yes, is your contribution I, I, to this book? I have a section in it, um, and uh, and so does uh, Chef Andre, okay. um, and 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 this is a big testament to ideas, unlike other people. Uh, where the they will take all the limelight and glory and not give credit to the experts, yeah. uh, she will just say the truth. Listen, I can't, you know, I can't cook. I, I, I'm just, I'm not good at that, and I don't garden. And she'll, she'll just say the real truth, which is really a testimony of who she is. And y- y- you. You don't meet too many people like that. And in her book, Real Solutions for Busy Moms, she tackles, you know, difficult topics. And this is this is who the woman is. I mean, you know, you'd think, well, why why is she going to to this area? I mean, for example, my 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 wife Tamara and I kind of chuckle and say, hey, you know, uh, I'm in the book. But why didn't we have this book earlier when we are sort of navigating the tricky landscape of parenting, especially teenagers? Uh, And we wish we had this book years ago. But, um, you know, Kathy says that life is messy and that we need to learn to talk to our children. Otherwise, someone else will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she tackles, you know, what I call uncomfortable subjects, like she'll she'll you know tackle the difficult topic of of AEA, um, uh, which is auto um, 
uh, erotic exficia, um, drug abuse, huffing and dusting, and that accidents are preventable injuries. Um, Kathy offers us solutions on what to do to break the cycle of abuse in families. I mean, her book explores the distinction of what we are all dealing with in this economy of interior prosperity versus an illusion of prosperity. You know, a, fa a facade is not genuine prosperity, and we certainly have many examples of all this uh, right now <laughs> in our Washington scene. Um, and I, I, I'm just amazed that she just says, you know what, let's just go head on and tell the truth and let's communicate about it. So what she does is, is she goes and finds brand partners. And, for example, we have brand partners of Shaw, uh, who's one of the largest uh, distributors, manufacturers of flooring and rugs, area rugs, carpets, laminates. Uh, one of our other partners are Pacific Coast Lighting. Um, and they have a huge lighting uh, inventory. Uh, they uh, Blonder Home, which is for wallpaper. Uh, Hannah Candles for candles. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And what it is is that she wants to go right to the independents, not the large boxes. Yes, some of it, but she she really wants to go where mom shops. Mm -hmm. which is the independent retailer. And that's how she she has a billion and a half growing world brand. Unbelievable. It is. Absolutely. And and one of the amazing things about Kathy is her ability to communicate is unparalleled. I've never seen a more powerful communicator who is grounded, genuine, and I'm pretty, um, you know, as an actor, I am comfortable in expressing myself, but I feel a neophyte next to Kathy Ireland. <laughs> Under, understand, she has spoken to the United Nations twice. I mean, this is a powerful human being. And I'm very happy and fortunate to call her my boss <laughs> and, and a friend. Uh, she's uh, she's uh, a huge blessing in my life. And uh, yeah. she always says, you know, you don't choose your, your family, your genetic family, <laughs> but you certainly choose your business family. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thrilled and honored that she has invited me into her business family. You know, this is probably not a fair question to ask you, but I'm going to take a stab anyway. Oh, go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm wondering, since she is so renowned as a model and as an actress, I'm wondering how difficult she found it when she was first starting out, and even now, to be taken seriously as a successful entrepreneur and businesswoman. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, she, she again, in her inimitable style, she answers it straight on. She said, you know... As, an, as a model, I was told to shut up and pose. So that gave me a lot of time to think. 
So now I have a lot to say. <laughs> and and she always does it in a in a loving, kind, powerful way. I've never heard her say a mean thing. Um she's always centered. I mean, absolutely focused on the mission statement. I mean, you have to understand as as a as a design oriented person that is always thinking of new design, new approaches, um I I'll bring to the table other team members will bring to the table some some pretty out there out of the box wonderful suggestions. And the first question that will always always come up is it anchored and does it serve our mission statement of finding solutions for families, especially busy moms? If it's not solution based, I don't want it. And 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 she uh, it, it, and it's like wow, you know, talk about walking the talk, and, and 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 a lot of people think that you know she's an endorsement, you know, she's a celebrity who has put her name to it, and a lot of people. Just or it's a that. or it's a vanity project. It's you know it's, it's exactly, not really or van- exactly or vanity project, and very quickly in less than five minutes, people say, "Oh, she's really in this. Oh, she's designing. Oh, and it's and you can see the about face. It's like, oh no 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 no. She said, you know, there are a lot of other people who may want to choose to do that, but this is mine, and if it's mine, I'm kind of a control freak." So I want to put my hands in everything. And very quickly, everybody understands it's not an endorsement. This is a serious commitment from a woman who is a visionary to basically offer a solution-based product worldwide. And, you know, her mission statement is in Spanish. Uh, It's international. I mean... It's it's worldwide. That's her umbrella. And what's wonderful for me is that I'm able to bring, you know, my weird gypsy-like background, <laughs> all all of what I came from, all that I am, and all the beauty that you've experienced in your travels. I mean, exactly you've been that I can the most beautiful bring. places on the globe. Exactly. And one of my favorite uh, invitations that Kathy gave me, she said, "I want you to develop." on your website, um, Gardens of the World. Because basically, she says that God is the ultimate designer. He is the ultimate creator. And all we need to do is to acknowledge that and be inspired by it to then come up with something close to it. And nothing comes closer to design than out of garden. So here I am, you know, trolling the world, looking for wonderful gardens to bring onto the website and to share that with the public free. Understand that, you know, that that's the wonderful thing about internet is that it's available to everyone. Mm-hmm. And then people are then moved by design worldwide. And you can simply do it by you know, clicking on KathyIreland.com, and there is uh, from Chef Andre of A Cafe 
wonderful solutions for food and entertainment and presentation. Um, there's real solutions for men, uh, for spa, for e emotional uh, aspects of your life, uh, uh, money issues. I mean, it, and it's all available on KathyIreland.com because she believes in offering solutions. That's really, really terrific. And, you, you, know, as, you know, as you were talking about that, I was sitting here thinking that in this world, all you ultimately have is your name. Yep. And, you know, some people use it so carelessly and so flippantly. And it's, it's really great to hear of, you know, this woman stepping up, deciding she wants this, and making it happen. And, and, and she does it, and I'm, I'm, at first, you know, and I think everybody reacts to her that way. That, you know, she's beautiful. She's tall and stunning and so well-spoken and so sincere and so, you know, human and accessible. And you go, okay, who who is she? You know, where's the real person? And you know what? This is who she is. That's what the amazing thing is. What you see is what you get. This is the real McCoy. And this is an extraordinary individual who will absolutely affect, has affected, but will continue to affect the world in a very positive way because that's what she's committed to. Yeah. And there's no bones and, you know, she, 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 you know, she will state that she's a Christian, but uh, she won't make everybody else wrong who's not. It's, 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 she, she really centers her life on her faith, which is a faith of love and forgiveness and non-judgment and that Jesus Christ is her Savior, and but she lives it rather than talks about it. So when you have an individual who really lives from her convictions and doesn't preach but acts out of love, you can only be touched and moved by it. And you go, wow, she's for real. And you can only be moved or pulled up or advanced or you go, okay, that's what it looks like. And it's and it's an amazing experience. It's just and I, I and you know and it's great to be led by someone like that because you're always reaching higher. You're you're always. Uh, trying to better yourself, you're always trying Absolutely. to to be anchored in truth and and integrity. Never re never resting on your laurels, always always. Exactly, and she's so humble, and uh, and I I I I am amazed and continue to be amazed by this woman, and uh, and I look forward to many many years under her leadership and tutelage. Wow. And it's fun. You know, that's another thing she says. Listen, if it's not fun, don't do it. <laughs> life's too short. And she has life these... is too short and life is too hard. Exactly. And and, and, and she said, why, why pretend that life isn't messy? You know, ask any parent who actually does the work of parenting if life isn't messy. So instead of pretending that life isn't messy, let's embrace it. Let's celebrate it. Let's use it to our advantage. Let's bring it out. 
instead of no, 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 no. This house, no child can walk through. Well, uh huh. And 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 she'll go to such detail. For example, with our furniture uh, uh, manufacturers, Vaughn Furniture, she will say, please make sure that each corner is rounded because I don't want any child to hit their head and have stitches. Yeah, no stitches uh, in this house. And, and, and that amount of detail and care is based, again, to the mission statement. Uh, or she'll say, you know, let's like, like these blanket uh, boxes that you put at the end of, of, of beds. You know, let's make sure that we drill holes because she says, we know that little guys will, you know, the big brother will have the little sister in that box, and we've got to make sure that she can breathe. And you go, wow, you know, who, who would have thought of that? Or to always give a dual, a dual solution, you know, uh, uh, more value than what mom expected under promise or deliver. For example, uh, a candle where... Um, you know, it's scented, but then let's give it into um, a sugar dispenser so that the, 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 when the candle is burnt, it actually can be used as a brown sugar dispenser. Or uh, for ju- that was an A-Cafe um, uh, candle diffu- uh, uh, container and, and candle presentation. For a J-Duget, let's give mom a frog where once the candle is burned, she can then insert the flower stems into the frog, into the grid pattern of the metal where the candle was presented. And it's, it's always based on that. So it's really fun because you're trying to better uh, mom's life. And, and, and it's sincere. It comes from a real sincere place. So let's remind everybody, tomorrow is the day for Real Solutions for Busy Moms. Yes. Which is a book. And it's a release by Simon and, Schuster. And, and I assume it, it can be found at all the major bookstores. And, all, and, uh, online, Amazon, Borders, all the major, major uh, absolutely. And there's signing locations. So please go on Kathy Ireland Worldwide um, and click on it. Uh, today... Uh, Kathy will have a live appearance April 7th on Fox and Friends and a morning show with Mike and Juliet Fox Parents TV and she was on the Today Show today. Excellent. And you can also follow Kathy on Twitter. So it's out there. Oh, fantastic. And it's, um, and it's and it's a great I really I I uh, <laughs> it's 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 an overall book. It's it's a guide, and she says it. It's your guide to success and sanity. <laughs> and, and it's 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 good for moms. It's good for grandmothers. It's uh, as Elizabeth Taylor says, Kathy's important new book helps moms, grandmothers, and all leaders. Once you become a mom, you never stop. Kathy's kindness must not be mistaken for weakness. Now here comes, this comes from Elizabeth Taylor, a powerful powerful, iconic Hollywood presence, a woman, extraordinary woman. And then she says, her strength and wisdom are helpful in solving any problem. 
so uh, it, it's from Howard Books, a division of Simon and Schuster. Okay. And it's in soft and in hardcover book. Fantastic. And I'm proud to have been invited to have a section in it. Absolutely. So. Well, you know, I tell you what, the next time you see her, you ought to put a bug in her ear and tell her that a big fan in Texas would would uh, love a chance to speak to her on his show. Okay. <laughs> well, I will I will do that. And, and you know, and perhaps, um, you know, an, another way of doing that is uh, having Chef Andre from A Cafe, who also came from Broadway, more of a musical dance guy. He is an ex-actor, um, and it might be interesting for you to explore his background and, and um, have him on, on your show. Absolutely. That would be fantastic. And his name is Andre Carthen, C-A-R-T-H-E-N. And he, he can give uh, the food entertainment uh, viewpoint. And, and he had, a, he had a, an interesting acting career as well. Well, that would be fantastic. You know, I, I uh, connected with you on Facebook today, so I'll get with you after the show, and and we can talk about you know uh, ways to contact each other and 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 get that set up because that would be fan- I would I would love I would love that. That would be a great thrill. No, absolutely. And Brandon, thank you so much. It was it, it's been really fun. Oh, I feel like I I, I've, I I feel like I've been transported, <laughs> <laughs> and I go, what are we talking about? And I thought, oh, this is I guess what I've done. <laughs> And where I am, and, and then, you know, the, that huge, um, the, the blessing of working with Kathy Ireland and Kathy Ireland Worldwide. So, Absolutely. thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you very much. for It was a great thrill. Like I said, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. And, you know, it's great to see that even though you've walked away from our daily television sets, that that you haven't, you know, you're still very much artistic and very much in charge of your destiny. It's It's really great to to see you indulging other facets of your personality. Yeah, and I never say, you know, it ain't over until the fat lady sings, right? So, you know, I, 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 my, my, my commitment to myself, to my family, to my wife, is to always have the courage to say yes to what life offers and to work through the fears that we all have to work through, you know? Absolutely. And what appears fearful most of the time, it's as... A wonderful sort of recovery program say false evidence appearing real i i love that definition you know fear is false evidence appearing real so you just have to kind of just work through that and then a wonderful surprise comes to you on the other side wow so before i let you go could i get you to do a promo for my show oh i'd love to i'd love to you can say nope. anything you like, as long as it includes the words Nicholas Walker and Brandon's Buzz. Well, tell me what you want me to say, because I'd, I'd love to deliver what you would love. <laughs> well, I, I, you know what? It's totally up to you, but, but um, like I said, as long as it has your name and my name, the rest of it is totally up to you. Okay. You could say, you could say you're listening to Brandon's Buzz, anything you like. Well, g- give me a bit of, uh, let, me, let me place it. You're listening to Brandon Buzz on what? On Blog Talk Radio. On Blog Talk Radio. That's good. Um, what else? What, what else do you want me to say? I, I, I don't know that you've had a great time being my guest. 
Okay. Or talking with me. Um, you know, it, it just anything. You, I mean, seriously, anything. <laughs> okay. The floor is yours. It's totally up to you. No, no, but I'd like to hit the, the right the right notes. I, Absolutely. Uh, Okay. We ready? I'm ready. Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker, and you're listening to Brandon Buzz on Blog Talk Radio. I had a wonderful time being your guest, Brandon, and please, uh, I look forward to do it again very soon. So all of you who are listening, this is a great show. Brandon is a great host, and... um, Come on down to Brandon Buzz on Blog Talk Radio. Wow. I have one more small favor for you, if I could. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you could say that in French. <laughs> Are you serious? That would, be, that would be so much fun. I am totally serious. Okay. You don't, have, you don't have to make it that long, but if you could say just something like that in French, that would be so okay. much fun. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Euh, bonjour à tous, bonsoir, vous êtes sur Brandon Buzz, sur Blog Talk Radio. Euh, c'est un grand plaisir d'être invité par Bo- euh, Brandon, parce qu'il est sympa et charmant. Et j'aimerais retourner euh, comme euh, invité euh, prochainement euh, dans l'année. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. You are so fantastic, and I'm telling you what, I, you have, I hope this is the first of many visits. You have a standing and permanent forum here. Anytime you wish to discuss anything you wish, sir, you are absolutely magnificent. Well, you know what? I would love to do that. Um, I will take you up on it because there are certain, there are certain uh, launchings that will happen. And Absolutely. I would love to uh it's a win win. I am committed to win wins. I I feel like I've I've reconnected with an old friend. I, I feel very comfortable with you. I've had a lot of fun. Thank Absolutely. you for having me on your show, Brandon, and I look forward to doing many more with you. As do I. I, I seriously hope you take advantage of that. I certainly will. Uh we're we're going to be launching um in the Midwest. In a particular, there's you know Target is a chain of stores, for example. Absolutely, yeah. uh, We are going to be launching J2J in Shopco in the Midwest. So I would love to, uh, when we, we come around that date, I would love to reconnect with you and share the great news for Busy Mom in the areas where Shopco serves Busy Mom. That would be great. As, you know, as I said, I befriended you on Facebook today, so... So please do keep in touch, and I will. Oh, I certainly will. I I will confirm (laughs) uh, you as a friend on Facebook, and uh, let's do this as one of many. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Buenas noches, buena (laughs) mañana, y muchas gracias para todo. (laughs) De nada, y tú. Okay, muchas gracias. Cuídase. (laughs) Adiós. The magnificent Nicholas Walker, everybody on Brandon's bus. What a great comeback show! I say I've been off air for a month now. And to come back with a fabulous guest is more than anybody could ask for. And I thank you so much for listening. 
Um, my next guest, my next confirmed guest, I don't have anybody else this week, but next Monday night I have a great guest lined up. His name is Dr. Damon Jacobs. He is a best-selling um, psychologist based out of New York City. He's just written a book on, on uh, uh, kind of living your life without the word should, uh, and he's going to come on and talk about that. He's a soap fan. He's a, he's a blogger on the Marlena De La Croix website. Um, and he is uh, a great guy. It's going to be a great conversation. So that's next Monday night. Um, I don't, I don't remember the time, or I would tell you, but you can find all the information at my.